0: The Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and I welcome you today to a special edition of this show because we're going to be talking for the first time in the history of of the Super Seventy Sports Podcast about one of my lifelong sporting passions, boxing. Growing up, my idol was Muhammad Ali, and I really was fortunate to see boxing through a, a real golden age in the 1970s and 80s. It was the perfect time to be a fan of the sport, and names like Ali, Larry Holmes, Mike Tyson, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, Roberto Duran... Uh, Thomas Hitman Hearn, Sugar Ray Leonard, and and the list really goes on. And I can think of nobody better to discuss the sweet science with than my guest today. So we're going to cover the 1970s and 80s up through boxing today. We're going to talk about a lot of the issues that have had relevance in boxing through the years uh, and the issues that boxing faces as we move on in the 21st century. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline Showtime Boxing Analyst, and a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame, Al Bernstein. Al, how are you?
1: I'm doing well.
0: How about you? Doing very well, Al. And uh, thrilled to have you on the podcast. You're you're one of my favorite broadcasters in, in any sport. Uh, I appreciate that. Not just boxing, and uh, really looking forward to talking to you because this is the first time that uh, I've had a boxing expert on this podcast, and I'm I'm itching to get to it. Well, great. Um it, it, let's go back to the beginning. You you started in the the infancy of ESPN with uh, with Top Rank boxing Thursday nights uh traveling around the country and and covering fights that oftentimes uh, uh weren't glamorous matchups and were not no. in glamorous locations. Uh, <laughs> what what was it like in those early days uh, of Top Rank boxing? Yeah,
1: it was interesting. You know, I I my book, I joked about it. I said we were kind of like the TV version of MASH units in, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in the war-torn areas. Um, you know, they, uh, it was an intriguing experience, and of course many of us were new to TV. Like in my case, I had just done a little broadcasting, but I kind of clawed my way into DSPN ESPN because I had written a book on boxing, and I was um, uh, you know, I, I, I helped them on the broadcast in Chicago, which was one of their stops, and it was, a, it was a fascinating time because uh, cable television was in its infancy and so all of cable was kind of a crapshoot and people weren't 100% sure it was going to end up being the behemoth that it was and certainly ESPN was not. Uh, they were in maybe 3 million homes um, in America and at the beginning when I first started in 1980, and uh, people also weren't sure that a 24-hour sports network was viable. And so all of that, plus the fact that, you know, they weren't, uh, we weren't, they weren't exactly operating on a, um, a huge budget to do all these fights, all of that made it kind of uh, an interesting experience. I always joked that we were like kind of the people that are doing community theater, you know. You band <laughs> together and you do, do the best you can with everything, and um, it was a lot of fun
0: and some of the names from those early days and I don't know how many of my uh, listeners are going to know some of these Mm -hmm. names but Kenny Bang Bang Bogner uh, Freddie Roach who of course has gone on to to achieve his greatest fame as as a trainer Vampire Johnson uh, (laughs) some of these characters Vampire Johnson was the guy who came to the ring in a coffin right? Yes
1: he came in and he dressed as a vampire in a coffin he would get out of the coffin yeah, uh, and then be introduced. Um, and he was a decent fighter, you know. A lot of these guys were were good fighters. They weren't maybe in many cases not world champions, but it was triple A boxing. You know, it was a uh, uh, Top Rank was putting on a series that was that was on virtually every week. I think maybe there were three or four weeks off in the year. So the sheer enormity of trying to put on a a, a television fight card that. Many times during a year is amazing. So, of course, you weren't going to get always, uh, you know, uh, top fighters. But we had those guys were characters. Kenny Bogner, who I think, I don't know if he ultimately got a world title shot. He was scheduled to have one against Ray Mancini and it got canceled. But uh, Kenny Bogner was, you know, an action filled, lightweight fighter who was a character. And he was a very popular fighter in. Um, uh, in Atlantic City and I was interviewing him one time after a, a great fight he'd had and his fans were all around him and they were real loud and um, I asked him a question and he couldn't hear it and and, and he looked at me and said, Al, I didn't hear an effing word you said <laughs> so I leaned in closer and repeated the question and then he said, oh, and then he, he answered it and he said yeah, that's good, I'm glad you asked me again because I didn't hear an effing word you said the first time so that was, we have many interesting uh, uh you know situations on our
0: suffering. You you know as a broadcaster, how long do you feel that it took you to really kind of find uh, your voice and, and who you were as a, as an individual in that role? Because I've got to imagine yeah, a, being out there every question. week. Yeah, that that uh, there's a certain amount of. I mean, I know even with my Twitter account, it, it takes a little while for you to kind of figure out who you are.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. You know, you, um... And it's funny, when I listen to broadcasts from uh, early, when people, and oftentimes on Twitter, they'll put a fight up there, I'll realize I was, I might be have done something differently than I would do it today. Um, I always, uh, the thing that I think helped me find my voice fairly quickly was that I came in with a very specific approach, um... I knew very well that uh, nobody knew who I was, nobody. I wasn't, while I boxed as an amateur, I certainly was not a famous boxer, uh, and um, and so my mission, it seemed to me, was to bring informa- extra information to bear, um, anecdotal information, uh, and factual information, and and, Then work all that in while I was analyzing the fight, uh, so that I could get, I needed to get, um, some kind of, um, acceptance by the audience and gain their, uh, their trust. And to just come in and be spouting opinions about what I thought of this and that, I didn't think was going to be, uh, correct. Which, by the way, I don't even think. Today would be the correct approach for me, even though I've, you know, I, I presumably gained the audience acceptance by now. If I haven't by now, I'm in trouble. Um, but so I had a very specific approach, and I was a newspaper man, so I viewed information and as important and insight as important as opinion. So that was what I tried. though, so while all that's happening, you have to be able to. You have to be able to analyze the fight along with your play-by-play announcer, and um, and I I guess I was just I uh, have that ability to to you know to 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 pay attention and to follow it, and also have some ability to to do the analysis. So I I, I'm going to say it took me um, five or six months to feel really comfortable. Doing it, and once I would settled in to doing it with the different, I have a lot of rules and regulations for myself as a broadcaster, and I adopted them during that period of time. And so, I, since I approached it with a certain system, um, once I was comfortable, I felt good.
0: Um, and, and you mentioned in your book, and I and I and I want people to know about the book. The book is, I'm going from memory here, Al, but it's it's 30 years, 30 undeniable truths. About uh, TV uh, sports and boxing. About boxing, yeah. Okay. boxing, Sports and TV. Correct. Okay. Very good. And it, uh, and it's a it's a terrific read. And oh, thank you. and one of the things that you mention in the book is uh, how there was a period of time before you ultimately paired up for a number of years with Barry Tompkins, where you were working with a great variety of uh, blow-by-blow guys. H- how much does the guy calling the fight on that end? Have an influence on on your job, and I know that you you certainly have done your share of blow by blow through the years as well, right. but when you're in that analyst role, uh, you know how much does the chemistry matter to you being able to uh, function at your top level
1: yeah, it does have an impact because um, there are certain things about what the play by play person is going to do that does have an impact i mean i I have my methods and my my regimen and my modus operandi no matter who I'm going to work with I'm going to do very similarly what I do. Some people though you can interact with more um, uh, sometimes depending on how much they talk uh, and whether it's a three man booth which back in those days it never was you you, you, it, it dictates how much you will talk because you I'm also a big believer that uh, you know natural sound uh is a good idea so i don't think announcers should be talking every second although nowadays in sports that rule is pretty much out the window but that's another story uh but but you know so it the play-by-play man does have an impact and and um you know i'm a big believer that if somebody you work with is um is let's say uh, subpar you know isn't as good as the next guy it's not an excuse for you having a bad show. It may impact a little bit what you do, but you should be able to rise above and and still get the job done but when you're when you have an a play by play announcer with you uh, who is doing the stuff he's supposed to do or she is the case may be um, and and you have a great rapport with them. Uh, and you've worked together a little bit, that's when broadcasting
0: is really fun. All right, well, I, I want to get your take on um, boxing through the years as you've observed it, because you've, you've been on the front lines for, for a good long while now, and, and you're as well positioned to, to answer a lot of the questions uh, that I have as, as I think literally uh, anybody in the world of boxing. Um, what about boxing today, versus yesterday you know when i was a fan uh coming up i really started to get into boxing late 70s through the 80s through the 90s i was just a passionate boxing fan i mean every uh, month i would get world boxing i would get ko magazine i would get the ring and i devoured it and i watched everything that i could watch on television back in the days when when you had lots of fights on the week on the weekends on on network tv and certainly, I was watching you every week. Um, and today, it, it, it feels like things have changed substantially since then. Now, is this just the generational thing? Where I'm sure in the '80s and '90s there were there were older guys who, who you know who thought that uh, you know boxing wasn't as good as it was in the '50s. And uh, there's probably going to be people 30 years from now who are calling back to what boxing was like in this time and age, but do you have any concerns about the health of the sport going forward? Because it seems that more and more it's kind of become this niche sport. And I know that it always was in a way, but I don't think we have the same crossover appeal in terms of your, your average casual sports fan being able to rattle off the names of, uh, you know, 10 or 12 boxers.
1: Yeah, not certainly not in the United States. The story of boxing is, broken into two parts currently you know there's the boxing internationally especially in places like the UK where I've also done broadcasting for UK networks there the sport is much more mainstream and it's going through an unparalleled uh, period of popularity and excellence the United States sport the boxing has become more of a niche sport and so it's not just a uh, looking back at the good old days kind of a thing. Um, you know, in the... When I started doing boxing in the 80s, it was on Over the Air Network, as you point out. Um, it was a bigger part of the sports landscape in general. If you had a big fight like one of the, I was privileged to call a number of the fights involving the Four Kings, you know, Marvin Hagler, mm-hmm. Sugar Ray Leonard, Tommy Hearns, and Roberto Duran. And those, those fights were... Covered by every mainstream media outlet, whether it be newspapers or television, it was before the internet, of course. Uh, it was a it was a part of the uh, mainstream fabric of sports in the United States. That's not true anymore. Um, of 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 papers, you fight. To me, what happened is the 1980s also was one of those decades that had was populated by the greatest fighters, like somebody, you know, you could go back in baseball and they look back at the 70s and and they say, oh, that's a golden era for baseball, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because not just because of baseball being more popular, but because the athletes were exceptional. Turns out the 80s and uh, were exceptional. And I talked to Gil Clancy, the great Gil Clancy, who was a mentor of mine. Um, and I was asked Gil because he had seen boxing in the 50s, even the 40s. Uh, And, of course, around for the 60s as well. And I said, is this a special group, or is it just because I am not as aware of, I know the fighters from the 50s, certainly in the 60s. I was watching them, but I was born in 1950, um, so I didn't know everything. Uh, I said, am I wrong in assuming that this is a special group, or or are they not? And he said, yeah, they are. He said, there were great fighters before. And he said that, you know, eras have been terrific, these guys would match up against any of them, and um, and in many cases, uh, maybe better. Um, the 80s were great for boxing. The 90s, in my opinion, ended up being a little bit of an abyss, because um, boxing left the over-the-air networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Um Great matches that needed to be made were not made in many cases. Um,
0: I'm still disappointed that Riddick Bowe never fought Lennox Lewis.
1: Yeah, it's a perfect example of the fights that weren't made. Uh, and also, um, you know, we had uh, big-name champions like Gordon Jones Jr. and Oscar De La Hoya and uh, Tyson Still and uh, Holyfield and others. But but it didn't pro- boxing was not producing the product that the fans wanted from it. And so the mainstream media by about the year 2001 or two stopped covering the sport and uh, for a variety of reasons. And then when boxing kind of got good again, which I think it did around 2004 or five, the mainstream media wasn't there anymore. And so that lack of coverage in the US, you know, was a big hindrance to the sport. And even though it has made some strides after uh, in terms of its product, which I think it has, and it's come back a little bit. It's had a hard time in the United States getting back to where it was.
0: Do, do you think the adage, uh, the old adage, you know, as goes the heavyweight division, so goes boxing, does that still hold true?
1: Well, I, see, I've never been a huge subscriber to that because, well, in America, the heavyweight championship was thought of was a revered thing, well, everywhere, I guess, but um, and was thought of as a pinnacle of sport but boxing history was always um, the foundation of boxing was always all the other weight divisions you know and uh, and in the 80's when I was really getting into becoming um, knowing boxing I knew it before then of course but when I was involved with it uh, the heavyweight division while Larry Holmes was a you know a good heavyweight um, but there wasn't heavyweights were good, but because other people were bigger stars, you know, the Four mm-hmm. Kings, like, Alexis Arguelland, Pryor, and people like that, and there were other uh, stars like Ray Mancini, who was, you know, his story broke through to America. Um, so I don't think it's mandatory for the heavyweight division to be great, for boxing to be healthy, but it is an enormous help, especially in the United
0: States. Well, Al, I think that uh, my listeners would would be really disappointed in me if I didn't ask you about Hagler Hearns. Uh, mm-hmm. You, of course, were ringside with with Al Michaels that night. Uh, you saw it up close. In, in your book, I believe you listed it as the as the second greatest fight uh, mm-hmm. that that you had covered. What are your memories of that night? Because I think for many of us, Um, you know, we've never seen eight minutes, uh, quite like that. I mean, to have so much packed into such a short amount of time, it, 30 years later, it still stands up as, uh, you know, just an epic night.
1: Yeah, it was extraordinary. Um, you know, when I, when those fighters are walking in at that outdoor stadium at Caesars Palace where so many of these great, that they built in the parking lot, (laughs) um, and and it was uh, so many of the great fights were acted out in that venue, and we were as they were walking in, and I I, I was just I took my headsets off for a moment. And I was just drinking in the atmosphere, and I thought to myself, this was only five years into my television career, so I was extremely lucky to be there doing that fight at that moment. And I thought to myself that exact thing. I said, I, you know, what a what a gift. To be here a responsibility too but a gift to be here doing this fight and i have at every almost every fight i've done especially ones that are of any magnitude i take that moment and i just sit there and i i literally try to clear my head and i look around and i remind myself that i'm lucky to have that seat um and then for that particular fight The ferocity and the passion with which those men fought that fight was staggering. Um, And as boxing fans that listen to your podcast will know, um, Marvin Hagler, that first round, Marvin Hagler got hit with a right hand by Tommy Hearns that momentarily stunned him. And Marvin Hagler had more than an iron chin. No one ever hurt Marvin Hagler. Ever, and Tommy Hearns damaged his hands with that punch. They had the most ferocious first round that uh, maybe we've ever seen in championship history. And when that round ended, Al Michaels and I just looked at each other and said, "Oh my God, what did we just witness?" You know? Um, and it was um, it was extraordinary. And as the fight went on for those two, two plus rounds, Marvin Andrews sustained some terrible cuts. Tommy Hearns was very close to winning that fight on a TKO, and Marvin Hagler literally willed himself to come back because of the cuts, right. uh, and he willed himself to come back and knock out Tommy Hearns.
0: Tommy Hearns was a, was a fine boxer. Why do you think that Tommy came out and just went, you know, both barrels on Marvin like that? Because it would seem that Tommy could have outboxed Marvin potentially.
1: Well, you know, yeah, I don't know about I mean, Hagler's also a good boxer, but Hagler made that. Uh, 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 he came out to make that a war, and that was what the fight was called, a war. And he, he made... He, and Hearns was kind of forced into that. If you look at the beginning parts of that first round, Hagler made that, that kind of fight. And Tommy's legs weren't under him in that fight as well as in other fights. Um, but, you know, he was just forced to... To engage in combat with Hagler, and um, and it was you know was was not to be. And I, I am a huge Tommy Hearns admirer. He was in fact inducted into the uh, Boxing Hall of Fame the same year I went in, and um, uh, which is a great honor. And you know I, Tommy Hearns could almost could easily have gone through his whole career undefeated. Um, you know it, because. He was, there were, every, every loss that he has has some kind of, I don't know, you know a, there is a path to victory. And so, it, you know, amazing fighters. So between the two of them, they they created a, a classic night. If I had to pick a night, that would be one of the one or two top nights I've ever spent in a boxing
0: match. One of the things you mention in your book as well is that Joe Frazier... Joe Frazier's career, I mean for fame Joe Frazier's career happened at a very Good time, but that Joe Frazier In another era Could have gone undefeated That he he, he just happened to come along at a time With perhaps the two people That were best equipped to deal with him
1: Perhaps that's a good way to put it The two people best equipped to deal with him Yeah, Ali, who was You know, who he lost to In two of the three fights Um it, And George Foreman, who was so big and strong that it was an issue for, for Joe. But in other eras, he might have, you know, just churned through people. And as it is, of course, he he had great great success and is a hall of famer. And but yeah, sometimes depending on the era you you were in, there's somebody there or a couple people to block you from, uh, from you know being dominant. But uh, another time, I mean. Uh, you know, we can pick out several eras in it. I mean, if Joe Frazier had been around in the 50s, for instance...
0: He would have been Marciano, right? Maybe a better version of Marciano.
1: Yeah, Rocky is a great fighter, but I think everybody agrees that Rocky Marciano and Joe Frazier would have been, you know, hellacious, right?
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Joe would have had a chance to to win, and, and uh, you know, uh, there were parts of time in other eras where... You know, certainly after his era, if Joe was around, if he'd come around five years later, um, I think we would have been making that same statement about
0: him. Now, one of the things that you mentioned in your book that, and, is, and, and yeah, I can tell, you know, the way that you wrote it in the book is you you realize that a lot of people were going to be saying, hey, wait a minute, what's Bernstein saying here? But you mentioned that you feel like properly motivated and up for the fight that Lennox Lewis might be the best heavyweight ever.
1: Yeah, he's the most unbeatable, certainly. Um, You know, that was the way I I looked at it. I I made a list of most unbeatable fighters, I guess. Um, And he was at the top of the list because um, his size and his power and his ability to fight tall would be so difficult for any heavyweight when, and I say when probably you said it well there when properly motivated and ready to fight he did lose twice and twice were those were fights he was ill prepared for and twice he came back and knocked out the man he lost to so uh, I just think I can't imagine and again many people will say it's blasphemy but I can't imagine any heavyweight dealing with his height and power and uh, and and the way he fought Effectively, in other words, someone might be like him. But if you fought, if he could fight somebody three times, my opinion, he'd win two out of the three. Or five times, he'd win three out of the five. I, I just, I just think it, it was a two. It was a tall challenge, and literally a tall challenge for any heavyweight.
0: Now, for for all of the hype that surrounds him, and and obviously he was a dynamic force uh, in his time. But I've always felt that Mike Tyson is. One of the most overrated fighters ever. Where, where where would you put Tyson on your on your all time heavyweight list?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting. This is one of those interesting questions that um, I lean toward your view, uh, though I'm not as probably as uh, uh, as I wouldn't say it as strongly as you did, but I do think that <clears throat> at the end of the day. I, Mike Tyson was an excellent... When he was at his best for that five or six-year period, uh, he didn't fight in a division that was supremely talented. Uh, there were some good fighters, but there weren't, you know, there weren't the, the kind of fighters that were... that I think were in some other eras. He was very good during that time. He was exceptional. But he was a... And he had power, certainly. Uh, but... You ask me to make a list of heavyweight champions. He's not going to be in my top five. You know, he just won't be because of a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, overall. Um, but and and I think you know when we saw him in situations that he couldn't control, that he wasn't in total control of. Um, you know, he had. He had
0: issues. So, no, I would tend to agree with you, although I don't know if I would put it in such stark terms. He's the only great heavyweight that I can think of off the top of my head, at least from that, you know, the 90s on back, where I can't think of a fight where he was having real difficulty and yet found a way to win. It was like he was either going to uh, have his way with you, but if, if... if you got him in, in, in trouble in some respect, it, it, it seems like he, he had real problems with that.
1: Yeah, no, the Douglas fight, he came back to knock Douglas down, uh, but couldn't finish the job. Um, uh, and uh, clearly the other fights, like Lennox Lewis and uh, the Holyfield um, fights, no, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't deal with it when you were on his level. He did have some trouble with uh, Razor Ruddock, and of course, one of those fights I thought was a little prematurely stopped by uh, Richard Steele. But, but for the most part, I agree with you. When when it was difficult, uh, he he didn't he was had a hard time uh, closing the show. And if you look back at somebody's career and find that that's a a pattern, you know, it, it, while it doesn't make them not worthy of being a terrific fighter and a champion it may make them not worthy of being literally one of the all-time greats.
0: Um, I want to toss a handful of mythical matchups at you. Uh, it, uh, Ali Tyson, you know, 1966-67 Ali against your 86-88 to 88 Tyson. Uh, what what outcome do you see in that, in that well, bout? Well,
1: I'm going to pick Ali in that fight because uh, of the movement. You know, uh, you, one of two kinds of people will be mike tyson uh... the person that is a really good boxer really really good or the person that is powerful and uh, knows how to throw uh... power punches as a counter puncher Um, and in a way the people that when they beat him buster douglas boxed beautifully in that fight and was a power counter puncher holyfield the same way Um, and uh Lennon big and powerful. I always thought George Foreman would beat uh Tyson. I even thought the old George Foreman would beat Tyson. In fact, I specifically thought the older George Foreman would beat him. Uh he would have found, he would have you know held him off, pushed him, uh done different things to him, landed these uppercuts as he was coming in and all the rest. So uh, so I would go with the young Ali against uh
0: Tyson. All right, here's one that uh that I'm really interested to to see what you think. Prime Larry Holmes against young George Foreman.
1: Oh, that's a good one.
0: Um, and I know George is a friend of yours.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like George. I like Larry too. Um,
0: uh,
1: you know, that's a good one, the young George Foreman, uh, because Larry was such a superb boxer, and uh, but was vulnerable sometimes to power punchers. But a young George Foreman could have ended up getting tired and having the fight end up a lot like the Ali fight. Mm-hmm. You know, that is a possibility because Larry Holmes was such a good boxer, and he might have taken him into later rounds uh, where he would have been in control. Um, ooh, that's a tough one. That one, I have a hard time picking a winner. Uh, I think that one could go either way.
0: All right, I'll I'll I'll, I'll, accept, I'll accept that because it's hard for I'll me to... Um, I think that I think that Larry would take him into deep water and and either either win a decision or maybe maybe stop him exhausted late.
1: Well, I think that's a distinct possibility. Um, but the, the, that is a distinct possibility. The only caveat to that is we do know that power punchers did give Larry Holmes some problems, and George Foreman at that
0: age was really powerful. Yeah. Mayweather, like if you put Floyd Mayweather in the in the four kings era, uh, and I know that uh, you know maybe Marvin's th- too big for him, and and uh, and Duran at that point is is you know really past his prime during that era. But if you look at Hearns and Leonard against Mayweather at say one forty seven, what chance would you give Floyd against those guys?
1: Extremely little. I just don't see him beating either of those guys. For- Slightly different reasons. Um, Ray Leonard is exactly—he is just as fast and as Mayweather with his hands and with his feet and with everything—and he's much more powerful. And um, and I I can't imagine Floyd Mayweather beating him. Tommy Hearns presents an even more dramatic. Challenge for him because of the height and length and reach of Tommy Hearns. He doesn't have to do anything but stand back all night, throw jabs, straight right hands, mixing a hook here and there. Um, Mayweather is not a power puncher, so that was where Tommy Hearns sometimes obviously had his issues. I doubt that Mayweather could hurt him. And I doubt that, you know, Mayweather would be able to avoid every single punch Tommy he earns you know so um i i would i would, both of them to me would be prohibitive favorites
0: for a guy like floyd is he lucky that he came along in an era where there was kind of nobody for him to fight in a in a certain sense or is that a loss for for him in terms of uh, you know, obviously he's done quite well financially, uh, even with the level of competition that he's fought. But is, you know, is, is it better to be in an era like Joe Frazier and, and be remembered for, for these, uh, uh, wars that you had with other great fighters? Or, or is it better to come along at a time where you can just rack up victory after victory, yet maybe never have that moment that, that reveals to yourself and to everyone else what you're truly made of?
1: Yeah, he would argue, probably, he and his people would argue that, look at his resume and you'll see it littered with champions and former champions. So they would probably argue the part that uh, that, that he didn't have as big of challenges. But there's no question, the era he came along in certainly is not as dramatic as the 80s we talked about or some other eras. Um, I don't think that... He's kind of been very good at spinning the idea that and even suggesting he's the greatest ever, which is, I don't think the case, but because of the undefeated record, because he's dominated his era so, so dramatically, which he has, and then he's fought some very good fighters. Um, I would go back to the, um, his fight with uh, Jose Luis Castillo, which were very close. And I would the way I would put that is, Jose Luis Castillo, while a very, very good fighter, could be called kind of the generic version of julio Cesar chavez or Mm -hmm. roberto Mm -hmm. uh i don't think we would put jose luis castillo on their level correct
0: correct so
1: so that was life and death for for floyd now it was relatively early in Floyd's career, but not that early um and so i think that whether you know he would argue it's better to be in an era when you can where you can make millions of dollars and, um, and then argue for your legacy. <laughs> um, but uh, it would have been interesting, and it would have been great had he been... I would have even been interested to see him in the previous era with De La Hoya, Trinidad, Vargas, and Quarte.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, you know, and Mosley. When Mosley was Mosley. Right. You know, he fought Mosley later on in, in, in uh, his career. But I, you know... Uh, that would have been an interesting era and I don't think he would have been undefeated in that era now how many would he have won I don't know he fought an, uh, an older Oscar De La Hoya and lost a very or won a close decision um, but I can't imagine him going through and all those guys fought each other didn't they you know yeah um, yeah they did at least once maybe we would have liked maybe more in some cases but you know Ike Korte was great Vargas was a good fighter Um, Trinidad was fantastic and would have been a very difficult matchup for Floyd, also, Um, and Delahoy, obviously. Um, So there were, there were even the guys that were the lower uh, a half step down, the Cars and people like that. There wouldn't have been, you know, it would have been uh, that era would have been difficult for Floyd. And you know, I'll say this about him because he's a terrific fighter. It isn't that he wouldn't beat any of these people, like even in the Four Kings era. If he catches Duran on a night when Duran isn't quite ready, he wins that fight, right? Right. But if he fights the Duran that fought Leonard in their first match, do we think that Floyd Mayweather is winning that fight? I, I don't
0: think, think so. no. Uh, yeah, I you think
1: know, I, because that's a carbon copy. Because I think, uh, I think, for instance, Marcos Maidana had a draw with uh, Mayweather in their first fight. That to me was a draw. Um. So you can imagine Duran fighting that same kind of fight, which is what he fought against
0: Leonard, making it uncomfortable for him. I just can't see Meriwether winning that. No, the the Duran from Montreal in in 1980, I, I think, he wins ten rounds against Floyd, yeah. probably out of you know if it's a fifteen round fight. I, I wanted to ask you about a couple of issues that I think through the years have um it been damaging to boxing in 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 one way or another and and one is the proliferation of belt holders yeah. you know when i became a fan as a as a young kid it was wba and wbc and then the ibf comes along and i remember at that time thinking oh my gosh you know we've got three champions in every division now we've got the wbo which came along later and is you know pretty well established now and and now we have interim champions and supreme champions, and all of all of these things. I mean, have we gotten to the? Have we, I mean, has that hurt boxing, or have we just gotten to the point now where nobody pays any mind to it, and it's kind of a non-issue?
1: Well, it's kind of like an, an illness that did its damage and doesn't need to go on doing any more damage. Um, you know, the proliferation of championships and weight divisions are the two things that have most damaged boxing. Think about it, you know, for casual boxing fans. I mean, I cover the sport on a regular basis, even though I've done work in other sports and I have pretty eclectic interests, so it's not like I live, eat, and breathe boxing, but it's my job to to know the sport. At any given moment, I'm confident to you without looking. I can't name all four champions in every weight division. That'd be impossible. So, if I can't do that, then I guarantee you most casual boxing fans couldn't do that and many hardcore boxing fans couldn't. Sports fans kind of like some sense of order, right? You know, we... uh, I mean, tonight as we talk, my beloved Cubs will take on the Indians and... We know that the winner of all that is the champion of baseball, right? You know, the, we know that in the NBA, and the NFL, the only sport that has been able to, in the United States anyway, that has been able to kind of gain in popularity <clears throat> while it had something of a mythical champion was college football. And even that sport has had to make some accommodations by creating some kind of playoff right right people sense of of having a real champion so sports fans want order in some ways and they don't get that in boxing and so boxing has become a sport where it's all about the matchups and while and while this has all been happening in mma the ufc which for the most part though there are other organizations in mixed martial arts ufc is the most the one that people point to, that has most of the, the talented fighters and people point to, to sit on their own ship. They, we know who their champion is, right? And we know... And, and there isn't even a proliferation of weight classes. So they have done things like the old time in boxing, in that regard, all the while making boxing's issues even more egregious. Um,
0: and we get into the sanctioning bodies and the shady business that's associated with that sometimes and you know it seems like everything is a money grab if we can we'll say i i I don't understand really the concept of interim champions but maybe that's just me but i think really the concept is just a way for the wbc or the wba or whatever to, to rake in more, more money. I, I, I want to ask you about bad decisions. Okay, there's nothing more infuriating as a boxing fan than to watch a, a, about whether it's hotly contested or whether it's maybe doesn't even seem like it's that hotly contested, and then you wind up with a decision that just does not seem to match what you've seen with your your own two eyes. When when that happens, is that on the up and up? most of the time we just have an honest disagreement of opinion or is it for some of us who at one time or another have kind of lost faith that for whatever reason we may not have gotten an accurate telling from uh one or more of the judges of uh, of what transpired in the ring
1: i don't think judges are bought for the most part i don't think i really don't believe that in fights that matter um because of the transparency that exists in this world and the, the, the ability to, for almost any story to, to see the light of day, I do not believe that judges are, people are buying off judges. What I do believe is that a combination of incompetency and kind of subliminal bias is working those two things are working hand in hand to create some very bad decisions and what i mean by that is i do i i and i believe that happens with referees as well by the way mm-hmm. uh, the wrestling a fight has a big impact on the outcome of fights and i believe that somebody may have it in their and this may be subconscious and subliminal but it comes to the surface in what they actually end up doing in their actions. Fighter A, they in the back of their brain feel is like feels more is kind of the the, the one that they feel has more influence in the sport or might even be better for the sport if they move forward. And so there's something in the back of or therefore more familiar with that fighter, uh they know that fighter, uh in general. Um and so what happens is there's this kind of implicit subliminal bias that will, 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 you know, push certain rounds to them. And I think that happens. I do believe it happens. You know, judges may not want to admit that, but I, uh, sometimes there's no other explanation, is there? Um, you know, we, we look at it and we say, oh, my goodness, you know. Um, and, and the incompetence and, and is part of it, too. And then there's a third factor. And here's the third factor is the beauty. This is the one in boxing that's always made me uh it's been the one part of this that makes it difficult even to announce it and to talk about it as a sport if you talk to any five judges i'm going to tell you that i don't think they really agree on how to score a fight but really i mean if the rules tell us for instance the the infamous um ring generalship what is that right what is ring generalship it it, of course, we know what it is. It's your ability to fight well and control territory in the ring, control pace, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But that in and of itself shouldn't make you win a round. Because if I'm a wonderful ring general and but I get hit with a bunch of power punches and whatever, I mean, I don't. How can I win a round? I, I am a believer that, and so that's a big part of it. People are not judging rounds. Same way.
0: In the le- isn't the legend that Willie Pep once won around without throwing a punch? They say that is the case. I don't, uh, you know, uh,
1: I don't know if it's one hundred percent true, but every, but many people say it, and it's been reported, uh, which would, of course, point that would be the ultimate example of what I just talked about. You know, that of course is ludicrous. I some people are maybe I, I see I I don't I like the idea of. Like, if you hit a windblown fly ball, but it goes over the wall, it counts as a homer, right? Right. So, if I hit you, and I haven't slapped with the glove, and I've hit you in a legal area, it doesn't matter whether I'm stylish or unstylish, that counts. And so, for me, I, I, I just care who lands the most punches. Most legal punches. You know, a legal... A effective punches. And when I say effective, pronated punches, they didn't slap with the glove, or, or and they landed in a legal area. If some guy lands 10 really nice jabs in a round, and they're legal, and they landed, and I can know they landed, I watched them, right, and I know they landed, mm-hmm. and the other, and then he, the other guy lands two really powerful left hooks, and on one of them, the guy got wobbled a little bit, but he didn't go down. There's no question in my mind, the guy that landed 10 jabs wins the round. Some people would argue that point with me, and they would say, oh, but the other guy hurt him. Well, okay, I don't know, how, did he go down? Now, if you go down, that's the equalizer, right? See, that's where now it's quantitative and not qualitative. If a guy goes down, well, now you did something special, so you deserve to, you definitely deserve to win that round, right? Because you
0: Right, and it might even be a two-point round.
1: And it could be a two-point round, which it often is. Most times it is kind of by rote, and I'm not even sure that's appropriate, but um, so I don't mind, and I've often said, what I'd like to see is not what the Olympic system was with counting points, but something different. I'd like to see every judge have in front of them two big buttons, really big, so they, they didn't have to look down to touch them. One over here for this guy, one over here for this guy, or a woman, as the case, be, And... When they think a punch landed from one guy, they touch it, and they touch it. Now, Copybox, which counts punches, they will tell you that you have to watch only one person, and that's true. Like, they have one person assigned to what, count one person, one person to count assigned another. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way to know you counted correctly. And, 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 and I get that. And that's true. But we only have one judge. So my point is, they touch that, and it's purely... Uh, it's not going to go to its main computer system like the the Olympics. At the end of each round, they're going to pr- print out a button that's going to print out, uh, give them a printout to remind them what they thought as that round was going on. And it would at least be a quantitative way for them to know what they thought during the round.
0: Well, Al, what what you're making me think of now is is Leonard Hagler, and you know the way that Ray would would really flurry in the last thirty seconds of each round to quote unquote steal to steal the round, and and it was an effective strategy for him that night because because the human mind we remember the most recent thing that we saw a little more. Right.
1: Which is a, but here's the thing that gets me. What bothers me is that if you're judging a boxing match, like, like I, I hate scoring fights, and I finally convinced people that I don't want to score fights on TV. You have to do it. I don't want to score fights because I'm announcing a fight. I have other duties to attend to.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and I don't want to put a scorecard up because I'm doing other things. Boxing judges, however, have only one task there that night. Only task is to judge that fight. So, they should be able to find some method of paying attention well enough. The very thing you just talked about is really an outrage when you think about it because if I'm sitting there, my whole job is to, to, to judge this fight, whether it's making a scratch on a paper or just keeping it in my brain. Shouldn't I remember what happened in the first two minutes and 35 seconds of that round? hmm You know, um, and yet, what you're saying has validity. So, it's, you know, I, I, that's where I think, and you can have rounds, listen, there are many rounds that are close, you know, we see fights that are close, and I don't ever get angry at judges who, in a very close fight, may have it a point different than you thought. That could happen. Sure. What gets boxing fans insane is we've watched a fight that we know is very competitive. Round by round. Mm-hmm. Kind of like judging a presidential election. It's state by state. Now, elect all votes it is. So that's what's going to decide it. Round by round is deciding a boxing match. If I see that each, all the, many of the rounds are competitive, then, you know, when I see a score and have somebody winning, you know, nine rounds to three in a 12 round fight, and, you know or worse I, I, it's like, I don't understand how, what we were
0: watching yeah, how many times have we heard in the crowd just groans <laughs> you know it's it's just like regardless of who you had ahead you know if, if you think somebody won 9 or 10 rounds in this fight that, that's right. a problem <laughs> right makes right. doesn't
1: make sense it just and, and that happens way too often um and that's why I think boxing you know runs the foul of uh of people, and it's also, I think, what people point to many times for the people that are critics of the sport. And I understand that. You know, it's frustrating sometimes. A, a, a perfect example is Orlando Salido, who was uh, twice, if I'm not mistaken, was ripped off against Rocky Martinez. You know, mm-hmm. I did one of those fights, and I mean, it was uh, it was blatant. You know, and I'm like, how did this happen? You know. Or we had a recent fight. I forget. Uh, Was one with uh, I can't remember. But when I see a fighter who who isn't the name guy, the, the isn't the champion, or isn't oh, it was Edner Cherry. I think it was against Pedraza. And Edner Cherry did everything possible to win, and in my opinion, won the fight. They stole it from him, and that's where you wonder. Okay, so is it because Edner Cherry isn't as big a name as uh, right, thing, or
0: because it, it it's not like it's 50-50 in these situations, who right. who winds up getting the benefit? I mean, more often than not, it's the favorite.
1: He's right; it's champ favorite or somebody that you know. You're right; it, it's more often than not. That doesn't always happen, but but when it does happen, that's you know, uh, you know, we can point to that and it's. It's difficult, you know. Uh, and listen, we've had a lot of upsets in boxing, even this year. Um, and you see them, but uh, sometimes, it's, you know, and that's a big issue for the sport.
0: Right, well, Al, as we, as we wrap this up, let me ask you, for if if I've got some folks that are listening to this and... And hopefully, after uh, this conversation that we've had, maybe maybe the old boxing impulses are, are are flickering a little bit inside of some of my listeners, and they're thinking about, well, you know, gosh, maybe I maybe I need to start watching some fights again. Who are who are the you know two or three or four names uh, uh, today? That you would say uh, for somebody that's getting back into the sport that they should be aware of and, and, and might kind of help them uh, rekindle their, their love for the game?
1: Well, it's about matchups now as much as stars, you know. And I'll give you, you know, boxing didn't have its. The first part of boxing the year in 2006 looked pretty good. Then it kind of. A lot of the big matches weren't being made. But I'll give you. I'll, I'll mention a bunch of fights right off the bat that. If somebody is not a boxing fan, they should watch, you know. On December 10th, they should watch Abner Mars against Jesus Cuellar. Uh, And on that same card, it's uh, J-Rock Williams against Jamal Charlo, 154-pounders. And then heading into the new year, uh, on Showtime, we've got uh, James DeGale, who's a British 168-pound champion, against Babu Jack, who also has a version of the 168-pound champion the two best in that division fighting on January 14th that spectacular fight and on January 28th the rematch of a great fight in 2016 with um, Leo Santa Cruz taking on Carl Frampton Carl Frampton the Brit- the um, Northern Ireland fighter uh, that's a great fight And then finally on March 4th this fight is if you're not if you're a casual boxing fan and you want to watch something this is I I couldn't recommend a fight more for you. Uh, Danny Garcia and Keith Thurman. They're both excellent fighters, uh, among the best in what is a very talented welterweight division. Um, so those are that's a whole series of fights that if they live up to, if they even come, they even come close to living up to their potential, um, give fans a, you know something good to watch. And I think there'll be more of it. What, what casual boxing fans, if you're we're interested in the sport, And you've heard a bunch of media people say, oh, well, you know, the sport just doesn't give you anything good anymore. That's false. I'm not being a cheerleader for the sport, but it's false. 2016 had at least 10 great TV matches that you could have watched had you known when they were on or had, had them be available to you. So I urge any casual boxing fans just be a little bit aware, take a look and see what fights are coming and, and uh, if nothing else DVR it you know give it a chance um, because there's still some excellent fights and excellent fighters
0: alright boxing is not dead uh, and, and let me ask you this I hope I've asked you uh, enough good questions that I've earned the credibility to ask you one dumb one here at the, at the very end you're there at ringside all these years what is the situation with blood and snot and stuff like that I mean how often do you get hit with fluids down there Al
1: well, that has happened. That's not actually another dumb question. I still have, you know, I save notes from the fights, and I'll go back and uh, I always laugh because I'll see blood spatters on it. I've lost many a shirt to uh, to blood spatters, um, <laughs> and uh, have many times uh, had, you know, been spattered with with uh, like you say many many different fluids that fly way. Your- so let's put it, if you have a cup of coffee there, you always put a piece of paper on top
0: of it. <laughs> all right. Al Bernstein is still there on the front lines on Showtime, putting his body in the way of all kinds of fluids for uh, the entertainment and education of us as fans. So really a great pleasure to have you on the podcast, and, and I thank you for being my guest today.
1: I appreciate it. It was a great interview, and I appreciate the questions you asked. They were great. And I hope everybody gets a chance to listen to us. and uh, I'd be delighted to do it again sometime.
0: Thank you, my friend. I wish you the best. Take care. Uh, what a great pleasure to have Al Bernstein on the show today. He's covered the sport of boxing with such knowledge and humor for 30 plus years now, and it was just a treat to be able to talk to him today. And hopefully, we can get Al back on at some point in the future to discuss the fight game and some of his other endeavors. He's really quite an interesting guy, and I thank him very much for being on the show. Next week, my guest is probably the most influential journalist in NBA history. Peter Vesey will join me to discuss his nearly 50 years. Covering pro basketball, we'll be talking about everything from Dr. J to Larry Bird, Michael Jordan. You know, believe it or not, Peter once played Larry Bird one-on-one. He lost. Peter is the guy who nicknamed Bird Larry Legend. And he's given a lot of people nicknames, and many of them were not that flattering. So we'll talk about that and more, and you'll get a front-row seat as Peter discusses the game he loves some of the biggest stories he's broken during his career, and why he can't stand Charles Barkley. So don't forget to join me, Ricky Cobb, next week and never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.